0: Hello and welcome to People and Profit, our look at the world of business and economics this week. I'm Shah Pellegrin and coming up, XAI, Elon Musk's generative AI venture, launches its rival to ChatGPT, hoping to capitalize on the artificial intelligence revolution. While the private sector races to profit from AI innovation, governments scramble to keep up, vowing to protect humanity from potential catastrophe. But what will AI regulation look like? We'll discuss it with our guest, Denis Jacquet. And we'll weigh the pros and cons of remote work and return to office orders as companies around the world try to define what the new normal is in the post-pandemic world. Well, a name inspired by the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, a rebellious streak, and a team of 12 AI experts. Those are some of the ingredients that went into making Grok, the new AI chatbot created by Elon Musk's company, XAI, and launched this week. The entrepreneur will hope his recipe will be the right one in the race to profit from the advent of generative AI. France 24's tech editor, Peter O'Brien, tells us more.
1: Elon Musk is back on the AI bandwagon with a chatbot that he promises will be as rude and uninhibited as our dirty minds desire his company xai has released grok a so called large language model to compete in an increasingly crowded field
0: technically there isn't anything that is particularly surprising about um, surprising about this uh, uh, this particular uh, this particular llm in fact it's even smaller than the open source one that um, facebook has given out
1: What's more surprising is that XAI claims it was trained in just four months and that it outperforms more complicated models like Meta's Llama 2.
0: Large language models trained on the web-scale data, and all of these are trained on the same web-scale data. It's not like Elon has a different web that he's looking into. His only potential competitive advantage is that he has access to Twitter data that he's not allowing other people to use.
1: Unlike other models, though, Grok is not free to use, let alone open source. It's only available to users who spend 16 euros a month on extra features for Twitter, which Musk has rebranded as X. In March, he joined calls for a pause on the development of large AI models, widely believed to be because he had some catching up to do. Musk left OpenAI, which he co-founded, before its ChatGPT took the world by storm a year ago. Investment in AI has gone through the roof, with the percentage of funding going to AI-related startups in the U.S. doubling this year. Google's Bard, Anthropic's Claude, Baidu's Ernie and now Musk's Grok. It's a busy contest for which bot will chat the most.
0: Well, Musk's announcement comes on the back of the world's first summit on AI safety, which took place in the UK at the start of the month and described the risks of AI as potentially catastrophic for humanity. There, officials from 28 countries, including the US, EU members and China, as well as leading tech figures, agreed on the need to control the development of AI. One of these figures is the co-founder of AI companies DeepMind and Inflection AI, Mustafa Suleyman, he described the commitments made at the summit as a first step.
1: Remember, these are voluntary commitments that we're proactively making because the companies, myself included at Inflection, are saying this is a moment when we have to learn the lessons of social media and very carefully develop these technologies so that we always ensure they actually do the good that we intend.
0: Well, for more on this issue of regulating AI, let's turn to French tech entrepreneur and author Denis Jacquet, also the CEO and founder of Top Cream. Thank you for for joining us here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Of course. Uh, First off, let's get a sense uh, of the risks involved here. Uh, The Safety Summit talked of a potential catastrophe for humanity. Do you agree with this assessment?
2: You know, there's a risk in every innovation. When you think about, I don't know, nuclear power. So you can build bomb and kill millions of people or just power your house, power everything in a country and you need it so you can do the best and the worst at the same time with same technology. And certainly the nuclear power is certainly more deadly than AI will ever be. So it's a different kind of risk. I would say that the the real question is why do we need AI? And uh, it's a question with no clear answer. So if you take the, um, let's say the the business side, the business side say, okay, it's a way to improve the way people are working, enhance their productivity, make sure that we have more profitability. So it's um, a lot of very good reasons when you're an entrepreneur, but At what cost? So that's really the question of why and at what cost. Because when you think about AI and jobs, the thing is, will we be able to use this tool to improve the way that you and me are working or develop a lot of tools that will be replacing you? And unfortunately, from our point of view at this stage, it drives a little bit more toward the, "Ah, how can we save millions of jobs that we don't need anymore? So... On this part, when you think about the wonderful aspects of the AI, I mean, in terms of health, you can certainly build so much data that you can have a personalized health instead of having the same medicine for you and me. It's different for you because the metabolism, the DNA, everything is different between you and me. So it makes a lot of sense. So the, the benefits for health are huge. Maybe we can repair the planet thanks to AI because using data to improve the climate change and everything. So the benefits are huge. The dangers are huge as well. Mm-hmm. Now, so at the end of the day, is it regulation that can make a difference? I'm not sure because it's something that we put everywhere and well, we have been working on it so long. Yeah. So.
0: Let's talk Finally. about regulation, actually, yeah. because uh, we've seen different approaches already. We were seeing the U.S. and yeah. the EU running away already, trying to uh, issue some, some guidelines, some uh-huh. rules. Uh-huh. And there's different approaches. There's the U.K. that's actually said, we're going to take our time. We're going to wait and see what the problems are before, uh, uh, before we make any, any decision. What approach do you think is preferable?
2: There's really three different ways of making this. So first thing is when you think about the Silicon Valley, most of the time they say, okay, let's invest, take risk, see what's happening, and then we'll fix things. It was working pretty well until the 90s, 2000. Now when you go to San Francisco, Los Angeles, you see that it's not working anymore. There's a huge amount of money available, a lot of billionaires, they are unable to fix things. So I think it's quite a dangerous approach business-wise for the pow- of all the power that the U.S. W- want to keep uh, because they have the most powerful companies in the world and they want to make sure that it stays that way. I understand the way that they don't want regulations. They say, oh, let's happen and then we'll see. And what is saying, the U.K. is not very far from here because it's kind of to sort of the same breed. And when you think about Europe, because mainly Europe is is not run by business, but run by governments. And most of the politicians that we have in France are Europe. They never worked in their life. They don't know what is a company. They don't know anything about digital. They don't understand AI. So they want to regulate. So, But regulate what? Because it's unfolding in every aspect of the technology. So what do you regulate? So. There's a saying in Africa that says that you cannot stop the sand from going through your fingers. How do you regulate something that you don't even see? And um, there's a third approach, which is the Chinese one, saying you can do whatever you want as long as you don't challenge the Chinese government and political status. And so they say, do whatever you want, but you don't touch to the political system. So it's three different approaches. My take is that on a few issues like jobs, we could be able to prepare ourselves now. We don't need regulation, we need preparation, which is a very different point of view. Yeah.
0: The French presidency is actually organizing a day of reflection uh, this week on AI, and it will include a meeting with TikTok uh, CEO Shozi Chu. Um, there's one big debate. Uh, over whether or not AI models, uh, like the ones powering Chad, GPT, or or GroK, which we mentioned earlier in the show, should be closed or open source. France is defending the open source model, in part because it's big champion in AI, Mistral AI, Mm -hmm. uh, is an open source model. Uh, What's your take on on this
2: debate on open versus closed source? You know, I have been in the learning business from the beginning, so 2000. And uh, at some point, people say, oh. We cannot stand all these platforms. You have to pay a huge amount of money to use them. And education, online training should be open to everyone. So everybody should be able to access it. So it should be free. So the first thing is open doesn't mean that it's for free. Because at some point, you have to pay to develop things. And you have to pay people developing them. But at some point, if you want to scale a business and make sure that it's sustainable, you have to make money. So 20 years later, guess what? It's only a bunch of maybe 10 or 15 companies that are running the show. So there's a lot of open source stuff. So open is nice. So it means that you want to make sure that everyone, you and me, we could develop an open AI, uh, an AI-based applications of any kind that we could run to anyone But at the end of the day, you need to find a business model so that it's sustainable because otherwise, if nobody is paying for it, how do you maintain it? So the open versus not open, it's just a matter of sustainability in terms of in in economic ways. So it's not working so well. So intellectually, that's really uh, attractive in the real life. Not so easy.
0: Denis Jacquet, you're an entrepreneur and the CEO and founder of Top Cream. Thank you very much for speaking to Fred. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, it's been more than three years since the COVID pandemic pushed companies to completely rethink their organizations. Suddenly, office workers had to continue being productive, working full time from home. And today, getting these workers back to the office is proving complicated, as evidenced by co-working space company WeWork filing for bankruptcy this week. Groups like Disney, Goldman Sachs or even Zoom are calling their workers back to HQ with varying degrees of success. Well, Brian Quinn from France 24's business desk joins us now. Hi, Brian. Why are employees so reluctant to head back to the office?
3: So, Charles, uh, less time spent commuting is one big reason. On average, remote workers around the world save 72 minutes per day there. Surveys show that workers in the U.S. spend $51 per day going into the office. That on things like transportation, parking, lunch, and pet care. Compare that to just $15 per day working from home. You get savings of $36 each day. And With child care costs topping $700 per month in the U.S. and the U.K., a savings Saving money there is another big draw. And many employers believe that working from home actually hurts productivity. Well, they do, but evidence on productivity is actually mixed. One Stanford University study indicates a drop of 9 to 18% for fully remote workers. Among the possible causes there, less efficient communication, less collaboration, less learning between colleagues. Other studies, though, show productivity gains as much as 13% for fully remote work. Now, remote work as a widespread phenomenon is still very new, so the jury is still out.
0: Still, many employers are, are and, and companies are accommodating uh, to uh, remote workers.
3: They, uh, they are indeed. There's a big push for return to office, RTO for short. It's in full swing for corporate America, especially uh, after jumping to 54% amid the pandemic. The number of Americans working... Fully from home, now down to 12%. Amazon, Disney, and Starbucks are among the companies insisting that their employees be in the office at least three days a week, with Goldman Sachs insisting on five days. That is having effects across the economy, including big layoffs at video conferencing company Zoom, which has ditched 15% of its global staff this year. With the U.S. labor market tight and workers keen to maintain some remote work options, most analysts think that a hybrid model will eventually become the new normal. Brian Quinn, thank you very much for that. That's it
0: for this week. You can uh, watch our previous editions on France24.com or listen by searching for People in Profit on the podcast platform of your choice. And if you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out to us on social media. In the meantime, thanks for watching and stay tuned to France24.